You can open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. I have entitled this message, The Measure of Christ's Gift, Singular. Okay? Not plural. The Measure of Christ's Gift. And that, I took it from these texts. Um, we have now come to a new section of the epistle to the Ephesians. The subject of these last three chapters are the conduct of the church and the vocation of the believer. We have learned of the heavenly calling of the believer, and now we've come to the believer's manner of life, his earthly walk. This is not a worldly walk, but it is an earthly walk. The true believers, which collectively we call the church, are seated in the heavenlies in Christ. Christ is the head of the body, and He is seated at God's right hand, but the church is to live down here on the earth until he takes us home. We have come to the practical side of Ephesians versus the first three chapters. This is actually um, where things change in chapter four. The earthly conduct of the church. And in this chapter, the church is portrayed as a new man. The new man is to exhibit himself down here. The members of the invisible church are to make themselves visible. They are to get out the word of God. Good place for an amen. What are we here for? What are we passing on? Well, God says his word will never return void. And my new friend, the chimney cleaner, uh, got a lot of the word in him and it's not going to return void. He was genuinely interested and he wanted to know more. The Bible he does not know. And, um, and I said, bottom line with all this, just make sure you're right with the Lord. And um, I invited him to church. Maybe he's there, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he's watching, I don't know that either. But this morning we're going to look at two aspects in the first 16 verses. Uh, next week, in verses 17 to 32, um, uh, we'll be looking at the, um, the purpose of the gifts that he's given to us in the becoming an, a new man and putting off the old man. So that's next week, 17 to 32. This week, I want to um, look at the first 16 verses and two different aspects Uh, that I would like to look at. One is the different resurrections recorded in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, resurrections of people who were alive and resurrections of people who were dead. But nonetheless, they were resurrections. And then the second part of our study this morning is the purpose of the gifts he's given to the church. So let's go back where Paul was reading earlier, and we'll read up to verse six. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech is another way to say, it's old English for uh, I beg you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And do it with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now when I read that, it makes me think of one thing. I wonder if Paul was from Texas (laughs) Y'all. <laughs> so the point that he's beginning with and what we'll end with this morning is this whole idea is, is you guys need to love on each other. And you guys got to go out of your way, even if you disagree maybe on a, a doctrine that isn't critical, that you say, okay, uh, and I'll point one of those out this morning, uh, there's times that you say, I, I can't accept that, that's not biblical. 
But if it's questionable and it's not related to direct salvation, don't get into an argument for the sake of an argument. It says here, seek to keep the unity. And uh, for those people who will tell you, well, there's other ways to get to heaven and get to God, um, ask them, well, do you believe the Bible? Yeah, I believe the Bible. Oh, well, my Bible says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and one Father, not many gods, just one, and that he's the only way. And it sort of categorizes us into what I believe is going to be an increasingly um, smaller group who will insist on not compromising when it comes to the scriptures. Another good place for an amen. And we got to buckle up and man up and not compromise in this area. So, and these first couple verses here, um, we're looking at the different resurrections. So what I'm gonna take you through this morning is started in the Old Testament and take you all the way through to the book of Revelation and show you the different resurrections um, that the Bible talks about. Because what is our blessed hope but to be resurrected? So um, let's begin by looking and turning back to the book of Genesis chapter five. And we'll look at the first bodily resurrection. Dwight, what do you mean when you say bodily resurrection? It means that the person is still alive when he's resurrected. He's not dead, he's alive. So what we have in Genesis five is the genealogy beginning with Adam and it ends in Noah. There's 32 verses and it tells um, uh, who the descendants of Adam were and it goes all the way up to Noah. I'm interested in verse 24 with Enoch and it says, and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that Enoch walked with God and God took him. (laughs) He was translated, he was resurrected. Why? I think as as a foreshadow of an Old Testament, right as you're getting into the book of Genesis, we have a picture of the resurrection. And this one was a bodily one. Um, Notice in verse two, it says, he created them male and female, transgender, same gender, sometimes man, sometimes woman, whatever you wanna be. Oh, it doesn't say that at all. It said he made two kinds. He made a man and made a woman, and then you say, period. That's it. You're a man or you're a woman. And I can tell the difference real easy. (laughs) I can't believe what I hear on TV, what people are talking about. Do you know that it's even crept into churches and they're allowing it to be crept into churches? Not in this church, not on my watch, not in your house, not on your watch. Just tell them, are you crazy? (laughs) And um, it is so, uh, it's mind boggling. Let's turn to 2 Kings chapter two. Elijah's gonna get resurrected twice. We find here in chapter 22, verses one through 11. And it came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. And Elijah said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came to Elisha 
and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take you away and your master from over you today? And he said, yes, I know, keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. And he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from you today? So he answered, yes, I know, keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jordan. And he says, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, struck the water, it was divided this way and that way, so that the two of them crossed over on dry land. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elijah said, please let me have a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And so he answered, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if not, it shall not be. In other words, if you see me getting taken up today and you want a double portion of what I have and you actually see me getting taken up, you're gonna get what you ask for. However, if you do not see me taken up, then The Lord is not going to answer that request. Now verse 11, then it happened. As they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. A bodily resurrection. The first two in the scripture both are alive. Um, turn with me back to Ephesians and before we go on to the next one here I want to read verses 7 through 10 but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift okay now there's the gifts of the spirit but um, I'll explain it in a little bit more detail when we get to them but these are gifts that the Lord himself has given out but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift therefore he says when he ascended on high he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men now then he ascended what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. What is it telling us here? That before the Lord was bodily resurrected into heaven, well, he died and he was the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. Are you following me so far? Okay, Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, when I quote this to people, or if they have a problem with the Bible, they go, come on. You think that a man lived in a whale for three days and lived? And um, I said, well, let me put it to you this way. It doesn't say it was a whale. What it does say is that the Lord prepared a fish for Jonah. And the big word there is prepared. So he was in there for three days and three nights and he comes right out and says so. As Jonah was three days and three nights and uh, doesn't say whale, in a, a fish prepared by the Lord 
so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in where? The heart of the earth. To the thief on the cross who believed on him, he said, Lord, when, when you enter your kingdom, will you remember me? And he says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. All right, paradise is not heaven. Because when Jesus died, he was in three days and three nights in the earth, and it wasn't until he was resurrected, and um, uh, that was three days, and then he was another 40 days on the earth before he ascended in his own resurrection. Um, What's your point here, Dwight? Well, there's a whole lot of interesting things that happen and are presently happening in the heart of this earth. Let's turn to the book of Luke, chapter 16. Familiar scripture to some, new to some others. Luke, chapter 16, gives us insight. I might mention uh, that... um, expositional constancy comes into play here as a big theological word and it deals with consistency in parables and how to interpret a parable. One of the rules in interpreting parables is there's no proper names used. This particular story in Luke 16 picking up in verse 19 has a proper name. Therefore, it is disqualified as a parable, but an actual event that took place. So as you look at chapter 16, verse 19, it's called, it says the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I would say Jesus is telling the story of a real Lazarus and a real rich man. Verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. He was full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades. Now I'm going to make a distinction in our study this morning between Hades, hell, the lake of fire, and outer darkness. We're going to make a distinction between those four. Here it says Hades. It could be interpreted hell. So, and being in torment in hell or Hades he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. So we're talking literal flames. He actually has to have a different body that just doesn't burn up. Uh, He remains his consciousness from the world that he came from. And all he wants now is some relief from the pain and the torment that he is in. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus, evil things. They weren't really evil. He was just poor and just didn't have any money for food and he was dependent upon other people to help him. But now he's comforted and you're tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from here pass to us. And that had to be a realization that once that set in, he had to realize He was going to be there. I would say not for eternity because hell is going to be emptied someday. 
I'm getting a little little ahead of myself. But as I have this Bible study this morning, he's there right now. So that realization sets in that he's going to be there. And then he says, then I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify, or we'd say witness to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Let me just stop here. Um, We have loved ones that are not saved, agreed? We have friends that are not saved. And this would be a good place to do a practical application and say, listen my friends, this is real. And this place is going to exist and eventually be emptied into the lake of fire. And it's a good time where it says in Ephesians where we read earlier, what's the primary purpose of the church? To get the word of God out. Well, they don't like hearing it and so on and so forth. And let them get mad at you. Let them get upset with you. But God's word won't return void. Yes, there is that line in the sand that's drawn where Jesus said, like the village they went to, Lord, they do not want to hear the gospel at all. And they let us know in no uncertain terms, get out of Dodge. And then he said, okay, then I want you to shake the dust off your shoes and your clothing and go to somebody else who will listen. But the point is, at least lay it out there. Use the God of wonders. Um, um, Use Agenda One. Curtis Bowers did an interview with Gary Caw this week. They just knocked my socks off. It was so good. And Curtis's program, I've known both of them. They're both friends of mine for over 30 years. And um, programs like this help the common person who doesn't know uh, what's really taking place in the world. You get these two guys doing an interview together, and it is really an eye-opener. So Curtis has a weekly program you can sign up for, but this week he had our good friend Gary Kahn, and uh, he wrote the book En Route to Global Occupation. It came out in 1991. That's how long I've known Gary for. So, um, point being here, he doesn't take witnessing seriously until he realizes he's got people that are still alive that could go to this place. And Abrams said to them, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. That's another way of saying what is the purpose in the first, fourth chapter of Ephesians? For the church to get the word of God out. That is our purpose. And that is what he's saying here. Um, he's thinking if they could only see a miracle, they'd believe. Huh, isn't it interesting that there was a guy named Lazarus who was dead for four days and the Lord brought him back to life and many people got saved. The majority got saved that saw it. But there was a whole lot of other Jews from Jerusalem that looked at their friends and says, you know what this means, don't you? Not only do we have to kill Jesus, but we gotta kill Lazarus too. He's a walking testimony. Everybody knew he was dead for four days. And now he's around walking. We gotta, we gotta get rid of him. What's your point, Dwight? You can see miracles. You can see signs and wonders and still not be saved. Oh, if you only saw a miracle and uh, somebody come back from the dead, then they would repent. Not true. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one be raised from the dead. Paradise, who Jesus uh, told the thief on the cross is where he was going, is also known as Abraham's bosom all the Old Testament saints who died in faith. If you go to the book of Hebrews, if you're taking notes, um, you don't have to turn there, but what it is is a list of the Old Testament saints who died in faith, and because they died in faith, 
Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet, so they couldn't go to heaven. So there was a place of comfort that God had prepared for them called paradise. And at this point, the reason I brought this out is paradise is known as Abraham's bosom on all the Old Testament saints who died, this is where they went. But uh, both Isaiah 61, verse one, if you're taking notes, and Luke four, verse 18 says, he preached to the captives and he set the captives free. That's the Old Testament prophecy and we find it in Isaiah and we find it in Luke saying the same thing. Jesus emptied Abraham's bosom. Turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 27. And this is where the controversy comes in. For some, it's one of those controversies that is not worth breaking fellowship over. But in Matthew 27, we read in verse 51, and behold, this is when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top, from top to bottom. The earthquake and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints, while the only saints then would have been the Old Testament saints who had fallen asleep, uh, were raised and coming out of their graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Can you imagine <laughs> having an old relative that's been dead for 20 years and get the knock on the door and you open the door and there he is, alive and well. He says probably something like, you need to get saved. <laughs> All right, this is controversial. That's why I'm bringing out J. Vernon McGee and I'm, um, he's quoting this verse, verses nine and 10, he that descended the same also ascended up above the heavens that he might fill all things. And then he goes on and gives his uh, interpretation. The logical explanation of these verses is that since Christ ascended, he must have of necessity descended at some previous period. Some see only the incarnation in this. However, the early church fathers saw it in the work of Christ in bringing the Old Testament saints out of paradise up to the throne of God. We are told that he descended into hell it is not necessary, however, to assume that he entered into some form of suffering after his death. I'm gonna stop here. And remember I said earlier, there's some things that you can say um, it's controversial and, and it's not worth debating to keep the unity of the faith. But I'm gonna make the exception here and name names about where I will break fellowship with the person who holds to this belief. Joyce Myers. I Googled it this morning. I read it for myself. I had heard it, but I wanted to read it for myself. Joyce Myers in her teachings, as a woman pastor, I would have a problem with that, because the Bible clearly says that's not appropriate, says that when Jesus descended into hell, that he suffered there for our sins. And that is where I say no, that is where I draw the line. Because when Jesus said, it is finished, and all the work of my sins and your sins being cleansed away did not take place in hell, and Jesus' suffering. When he said it is finished, what did he mean by that? It is finished, period, it's over. And he was separated from the Father during that period of time. And now we have so many people Oh, but she's such a nice person and she helps out so many people. No, she's a pastor, woman pastor, who teaches a prosperity doctrine and also preaches that Jesus had to suffer in hell for your sins to be atoned. And that's where I have to draw the line. People don't like doing that. Why? Because it 
makes you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, but I really like Joyce Myers. Well, I'm sorry. (laughs) If the Bible says one thing and you're feeling another, then guess what? You're wrong and the Bible's right. And so what's your point, Dwight? Well, the main point of our chapter that we're studying this morning is the unity of the church, that we are to promote unity. And I say yes to that, absolutely. It's as long as it's not heresy and it's preaching another gospel. That's another gospel. And the Bible says that we're judged and you won't be judged, amen? But it also says the spiritual man judges all things. And there's times when it comes to doctrinal issues that I say, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna be a part of your home fellowship or I'm not gonna associate with you because I disagree with you on what I consider to be absolute heresy. And um, okay, so I got sidetracked there. Um, We are told that he descended into hell. It is not necessary, however, to assume that he entered into some form of suffering after his death. His incarnation and death were his humiliation and descent, and they were adequate to bring the redeemed of the Old Testament into the presence of God. This would explain his fullness here, that he descended in the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. I recognize, however, that there are other interpretations. Now, I'm gonna flip-flop, get away from Joyce Myers, and there are those who say no, Abraham's bosom is still there, and they'll be resurrected in the last days. And I don't believe that, but I won't break fellowship over that if you hold to that. But if you're gonna tell me that Jesus had to go down there to suffer some more, that's a different story. Is everybody with me? Okay, good, now we can go on. Thanks, Jim. (laughs) All right. Um, Let's now turn to the bodily resurrection of the Lord himself and the church Oh, the bodily resurrection of the church first. It began uh, in Acts 2. You don't have to turn there. We've made the point that um, at Pentecost, everybody that was in Jerusalem were from all parts of the world, but they were all Jews. There were no Gentiles at the Feast of Pentecost. And if they would have gotten saved, one Gentile would have gotten saved that would have gotten around and people would have known about it. What do you mean you're a Gentile and you got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit? No, they were all Jews. The early church was all Jews until Cornelius. We just had this Bible study either last week or the week before. And we made the point that the Jews were blown away, that a Gentile could get saved. So um, it began, the church had a beginning point and it was um, the Feast of Pentecost. Turn with me to a couple scriptures. First of all, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Scriptures that are well known to you, but I want to point them out, maybe for those of you who are hearing it for the first time. 1 Corinthians 15. It not only had a beginning, but it's going to have an end. It has to have an end so that God can fulfill his promise to Israel. So in 1 Corinthians 15, scriptures that you're familiar with, behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep or die, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trump will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So what we have here is every generation pays taxes and dies, except for one. And I believe with all my heart, my friends, we're the one. We are the generation, I believe it's that late, that's going to experience the bodily 
transformation that we call the rapture. With that, let's go to Romans chapter 11 and see the end of the church. So just a couple pages back to your left, Romans 11. Again, we touched on this just like the last couple of weeks. The church had a beginning and the church will have an end. And so in Romans 11, verse 25, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Implication, there's a set number that make up the church. And when that person gets saved, the church age is over, and um, the fullness of the Gentiles, the church is primarily made up of Gentiles today, born-again believers, not Jews, even though there are Messianic Jews. Well, I'll drop another name, and um, Amir Shafate. Um, he's, he has daily programs, they're very extensive, and he gives um, how close we are to the Ezekiel 30, 39 war right now and how fast it's happening. And um, so the next verse we read, and so all Israel will be saved. Well, there's a gap here. As soon as a church age ends, God owes Israel seven more years. And I was explaining this to my friend who was cleaning the fireplace out, and he found it intriguing. Um, God's working with Israel, the church, the rapture, the tribulation were all new terminology to him, but he was, he was an open book. And um, when you get people that are open, it's really enjoyable witnessing. So my point here is the church is going to be resurrected. How? Bodily. And for those who... This will really get your brain spinning. Well, what about the dead in Christ rising first and um, then we who are alive and remain get caught up? Uh, just put this in the back of your, your ticker for a second. As soon as you're raptured, you, let, you just left time, space, and matter. Okay? And what did you enter into? No time. Where are you going with that, Dwight? Is it possible we all get there at the same time? If there's no time? Are you timing with me? (laughs) Are you okay? (laughs) But in heaven, there is no time. It's the eternal now. I am that I am. And uh, I cannot wrap my head around that. I can speak it. I can teach it. I know it's true. I can understand having a beginning. I have no concept of having no end. That's you know, but um, that's a real possibility that everybody gets there at, at the same time. Just out there again, that's not one that should if have d- different opinion that it would be divisive over. So we have here the end of the church age. Began at Pentecost, ends at the rapture, a bodily resurrection. We're alive, but we're going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. I should have went on to read it because that's where Paul goes on to say, because of that, oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? It's talking about death and having no fear of it. Bring it on. I want to go home. I do want to go home. (laughs) All right, let's turn to um, Moses and Elijah in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11 are the two witnesses. Elijah went to heaven in a chariot. He came back down to earth with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now we find him again here in Revelation chapter 11. And we read, let's pick it up in verse three. And I will give power to my two witnesses they will prophesy 1,260 days, that's three and a half years. 
These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. This is a fulfilled prophecy from Zechariah. And if anybody wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anybody wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Now I want to make a point of this because sometimes there's confusion with the 144,000 being sealed and not being killed during this period of time. Nobody could do anything to the two witnesses. If anybody tried to kill them, they got killed. Okay? So we read, they have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over the waters to turn it to blood. Strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast, which ascends out of the bottomless pit, will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Nobody could kill them up to this point. God said, I'm going to give you this much time for your ministry. And when time's up, I'm bringing you home. And their dead bodies lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. The Lord is calling Jerusalem, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies there and uh, three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. I want you to catch something here. It says, and the people, tribes, and tongues of all nations will see their bodies for three and a half days. Question, how could that be possible? Oh, cable television. Did they have cable television back then? That's why I believe we're... The, the rapture could not have taken place. If every tribe and tongue and people are watching them for three and a half days, they had to have um, spectrum or time cable or one or the other to actually seeing this event take place. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwelt on the earth. Now, After three and a half days, this is interesting because it's a picture of the resurrection because Jesus was that long in the heart of the earth. And what have they been doing all this time? Preaching the gospel. And now, if they didn't believe it, they're gonna get a personal application example of it. Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended into heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. The whole world saw these guys resurrected bodily in heaven. In the same hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. The earthquake killed 7,000 men, were killed, and the rest of them gave glory to the God of heaven. So we have the bodily resurrection of Moses and Elijah. Turn a couple pages to chapter 14, and we have um, the resurrection of the 144,000. Now again, there are those who hold that the 144,000 are protected and sealed through the the whole duration of the tribulation period. I believe uh, these scriptures here teach just the opposite. Verse one of chapter 14. Then I looked to behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their forehead. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and the voice of the loud thunder, and I heard the sound of the harps playing their song. So my question is, where are they? And the answer is the voice that came from heaven, they're with the lamb, so I believe that they were also killed, but they're resurrected. 
And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So I don't believe they made it through the full seven-year duration. But remember, in chapter seven, it says a seal was put on them to protect them from the curses that would come. Some interpret that, okay, that's a whole seven-year period of time. And some see it only as till the Antichrist arrives on the scene and kills not only Moses and Elijah, but takes out the 144,000. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. They're in heaven. All right. Now, we have the, another resurrection, but instead of them being believers, we're now shifting gears, and we're going to have the resurrection of the lost. We need to turn to Revelation 20 for that one. Revelation 20, picking it up in verse 11, Right before this, um, is this where I want to talk about I'll get to it. Okay, uh, Revelation 20 is after the beast and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire. I'll come back to that. That's in 19. We have Satan bound for a thousand years. Now, after the thousand years is over, we have um, the last rebellion that the Lord squelches, and now we have what we call the great white throne judgment. And here, it's the judgment of those who died in their sins. And we read in verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and it was found no place for them. And I saw the dead. For believers, the word sleep is always used. Here, the word dead is used. Small and great stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works. Now the last thing I want to be judged by is by my works. I want grace, grace, God's grace, and not my works. But they were judged by their works, by the things that were written in the book. Everything is being written down. Lord, are you going to let that guy get away with that? Don't worry about it. I'm writing it down. I'll take care of it later. But I'm missing nothing. Nothing is missed. Everything you think, say, or do is all being recorded for that lost person. Everything I say, think, or do is under the blood of Jesus Christ. He took my sin and he gave me his righteousness. Now that's a good place for an amen. And that's why we're free. When Jesus said you'll know the truth, it'll set you free. And, um, but they were judged by their works. Now notice this. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the the dead who were in them. Well, who do we know that we studied this morning that was in Hades? Oh, the rich man. So Hades is not an eternal place. Well, how do you say that? Well, because it's emptied here, and they delivered up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. The rich man who is in hell now will eventually be resurrected. To where? To the great judgment seat of Christ and his works will be on display. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is a second death. All right, let me get a little sidetrack here and ask you a question. What's the difference between hell, the lake of fire, and outer darkness? where three times in the New Testament, there's also a place uh, called the place of weeping and gnashing 
of teeth. Three times you find that phrase. So the difference between Hades and being cast into everybody's name who's not found was cast into the lake of fire. Hell is going to be resurrecting that rich man and then he will eventually spend eternity in the lake of fire, which is not the same place as what we call Hades or hell. And then there's this place there called outer darkness. Well, I went online and I was curious because how can be flames of fire that produce light and still at the same time a place of outer darkness? And I Googled it and read at least 20 to 30 different thoughts and opinions on good, solid Bible teachers. And you know what? Every one of them had a different opinion. <laughs> and I wrap my head about it and I go, Lord, I gotta admit, I don't, I don't understand the outer darkness part of Lake of Fire. I mean, how, how do you have one and the same? And every one of them gave good, solid, biblical answers, but neither one of them were the same. So what are you saying, Dwight? I don't know. <laughs> All I know that the Bible teaches it, and therefore I believe it. There's a place called Three Times in the New Testament that they were cast into outer darkness, and then it says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that is pretty graphic. And all I know is I don't want to be there. Uh, But there is a difference between hell, Hades, the lake of fire, and the outer darkness. Hell is where the rich man was. He was in the lake of fire. Revelation uh, 19, go back to that, and look at verses 19 and 20, and we'll see the first two And I saw the beasts, this is at the Battle of Armageddon, and the armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark and the beast and those who worshiped his image. Now, notice this. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. What what does this mean? It means that the first ones cast into the lake of fire were the beast and the false prophet. Nobody else is cast into the lake of fire until after the thousand years and Satan is bound Um, people read this and they go, why don't they get rid of Satan at the same time? And the answer is because God's not through with them yet. He's gonna use them in the same way that he deceived Adam and Eve. He will go out once again and get people to trust in him rather than uh, the Lord himself. All right, let's go to... um, Jesus is bodily resurrection, Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one, verses nine through 11. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they stood steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. I'm not going to have you turn there, but if you're taking notes, you might want to jot down uh, Zechariah. Um, let's see, that would be Zechariah chapter 14. And I- I'm just going to read it for you. And this is a prophecy from the Old Testament. And it says in chapter 14, verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight with those nations as he fights in the day of battle. This is the battle of Armageddon. And then it says this, 
And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and a Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half towards the south. So just like the angels said to the disciples from Galilee, the same Jesus who was taken up from um, the Mount of Olives, he's gonna come back to the very, very same spot that he left from. Bodily resurrection coming up, and it says he's going to return with ten thousands of his saints. Guess who they are? That's us. And that's um, as bad as things are right now, and they're only gonna get worse um, when you have the whole story and you see that God has to keep his promise to Israel so that they're broken, and they once again say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when they say that, the Lord comes. And he will have completed his 490 years that he promised them from the book of Daniel. And what does he do? He returns to the very spot that he left from. And they saw him bodily being taken up into heaven. All right, let's go back and finish Ephesians. We're almost done. So we basically started in Genesis and went through Revelation, and I tried to point out the various bodily resurrections, starting with Enoch, and um, um, ones who were dead, like Moses and Elijah, that came back to life again. And... um, Lazarus, of course. And now, as we look back at Ephesians 4, let's look at verse 11. And the purpose of the gifts, remember? I said this was gonna be a two-part study, and the first part of it would be um, uh, about the, the resurrections, and the second part would be the purpose of the gifts. And some of you are thinking, Dwight, If you took that long on the first half of the study, then we're going to be here for a while. (laughs) No, this is um, an emphasis of making a couple quick points as we talk about the purpose of the gift singular. So we're looking at uh, verse 11 where we read, we left off in 10, and he himself, who's a he? Jesus himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. We have a partial list of what I call equippers. And I believe they differ from the gifts that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. Not that they aren't mentioned there, but here the Lord is picking out, I've I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Um, Some people feel guilty because they're not down in Haiti or Africa or doing stuff like that. And it's actually brings, you know, I should be doing more for, for the Lord. And if you have that attitude, let me just say this again, I've said it many times, that the scripture says that you are to remain when you get saved in the calling that you're in. What does that mean? That means if you're, if, if you're working for Kimberly Clark or some business and you get saved, oh, well, now I need to go to Africa. Well, yeah, if the Lord tells you to. Make your calling and election sure. In other words, when you get saved, don't feel that you have to become a missionary in Haiti. Be a missionary with the guys at work unless the Lord tells you otherwise. So here, there is a group of people that are called out with a specific purpose and he gave some to be apostles I do not believe there are apostles today because according to scripture you had to be an eyewitness of the Lord's resurrection in order to have that title some prophets some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers and here's the purpose of the gifts for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. So the false idea here is, um, well, that's 
that's Dwight's job to do the, the witnessing and the sharing and all that stuff. No, my job is to equip for, for what reason? To teach you how to do the work of ministry. So you're actually the laborers. But now it's not so much the labor that you do that we're gonna end with, but it's how you do it. And that's how I wanna wind up the study this morning. For the equipping of the saints, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be carried about, tossed to and fro about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. Deception is the number one thing that Jesus warned about in the last days. And I believe the deception basically is around COVID and the plan and the deception that goes with it that has caused fear in believers and unbelievers alike. It is global, that's never happened before, and it's a deception. I just read what the the president of the parliament in the UK said, this is all a sham. And the whole world has just been been, um, um, caught in the biggest deception that the world has ever seen because there's nothing in that uh, vaccine that is going to help you or heal you. Matter of fact, just the opposite is very possible. Uh, I could talk there, I'm gonna leave it at that. But being deceived, well, the whole world just got deceived. The whole world. But, and here it is, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things unto him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together, but whatever joint supplies according to the effectful working by which every part does its share. Now he's talking about the church. Now we think about 1 Corinthians 12. And the hand can't say to the foot, I don't have any need of you. I'm more important, I'm a hand, you're just a foot. No, matter of fact it says sometimes the ones that would seem least important are the most important. And so what he's saying to us here is don't take an attitude, is my gift is better than your gift, na 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 na. (laughs) No, just the opposite. Building up one another um, that the joint supplies according to effective working by which every part does its share. Every person here has something to do to love on one another and to encourage one another to keep the unity of the faith, but without compromising and being deceived with false doctrine, causing growth of the one body, and here it is, for the edifying of itself in love. I'm gonna close with this thought this morning. I think I'm gonna say one close this morning. That should really surprise you. No, I think I said earlier, yeah. Well, on course. 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I, tells me how I use my gift with love. And it says in the first couple verses that even if I have the gift of faith, so that I say to that mountain, mountain, be moved, but I have not love, I am nothing but a sounding, tingling, clanging noisemaker. Paul said it's the love of Christ that constrains us to do what we do. There are many ministries, people out there in the church world that do what they do to draw attention to themselves. Their idea is um, that they love self first and their neighbor second. And what this whole chapter, primarily about the first 16 verses, is the result is here, if it's love, is what it's all about. It is, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. It's all about love. Faith, hope, and love. 
He goes through all the lifts, and then he begins chapter 13, but I'm gonna show you one thing that's better than any of them. And he talks about love, and he describes it. And he says, I don't care how talented you are with your miraculous gifts that you have, even if you're gonna move a mountain. If you're not doing it because you wanna build the body up and love on them, then it says, I am nothing. And you already got your reward. So with that being said, we've, we've made it through our chapters. And um, um, may I encourage you, as we're teaching the equipping of the saints, that the main thing is loving on one another. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and close the prayer. Lord, we don't have any idea at all when it comes to describing your nature and character where it describes us that you are spirit, light, and love. And that's how the word of God describes who you are, those three. And the greatest of these is love. When it comes to the gift, you close by saying we have faith, we have hope in these dark and troubled times. But most importantly, Lord, give us love for one another. And don't let us be pity and... um, Uh, just help us major on the majors and um, try to build one another up as the best we can. We thank you that you are the way you are, long-suffering and patient and gracious, not willing that any should perish. Lord, give us a new burden for our loved ones, knowing that there really is an eternity. Um, Heaven for the saved and the lake of fire for the lost. And um, we pray that you use us in these last days. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.